It's been a good wargaming summer here in the Pacific Northwest. I've been able to get Triumph and Tragedy, Silver Bayonet, High Treason, 1989, and Hands in the Sea to the table. The Silver Bayonet game in particular was a great experience, and I'm looking forward to getting more time so I can try the released version of Colonial Twilight, which I played several times during the playtest period. In fact, I now have playtest credits in two of the three real wargames available about the Algerian War of Independence. I think that makes me some kind of specialist. Also in a playtest capacity, I managed to join a session of the upcoming coin game Gandhi, the decolonization of British India, being designed by Bruce Mansfield, and that was a great time as well. I also learned recently about a new podcast called Rally in the Valley, out of Wisconsin, which seems to be devoted primarily to war games. They've covered things like Festung Budapest, Blue Cross White Ensign, and a bunch of others. Their most recent episode is out today, in fact. It can be found at Rally in the Valley. .podbean.com. It's great to have a regular war game podcast for me to listen to. Although, guys, you got to pace yourselves. Five episodes in three weeks? You're going to burn out. Huh, just kidding. Nice job, and I love that you're both advertising that you're in your mid-20s, which gives me hope for the next generation of war gamers. In fact, that just happens to fit in with today's special interview guest. But first, the news. The Streets of Stalingrad 4th Edition Kickstarter, which was actually just a Kickstarter for the playtest kit, yeah, regardless, I was still really excited about it, was canceled on June 30th. Uh, Dana Lombardi put out a press release that just said, um, well, didn't really say much, said that he and David Parham had irreconcilable creative differences that had gotten in the way of producing the project. Now, I don't even know what that means. Uh, I contacted Dana for more information, but he was unable to discuss it as he's still under legal constraints. So, like I said, I don't know what it means, but given that they said that the game was basically done, but wanted to playtest additional scenarios, um, I can't imagine what differences they could have had that would derail a project that they'd put so much work into and that so many people were looking forward to. Um, Once again, what they'd represented as being basically done. They just wanted to playtest these extra scenarios. Yeah, so this makes me wonder whether it was actually a, uh, you know, financial obligation kind of thing and the creative differences line is just a face-saving phrase um whatever it was we may never know uh, dana did say that he and david have developed rules for uh, battalion regiment and division level games about the battle of stalingrad and when they uh you know get all the stuff ironed out and the contract expires yada yada they'll work on one of those games to replace the streets of stalingrad project yeah anyway um that's 
not that much uh, solace for me, but um, okay. Uh, that's going to be about September 30th, I think. That's 90 days from uh, the time it was canceled, so hopefully we'll find out more then. Now, if you want a different designer's take on the Eastern Front, um, why not try out Vance Von Bory's Demiosk Shield? Uh, that's still available from Belizean War Games at the post-release pricing, which is more than the pre-order price, but less than full retail. Legion's next games that it has announced as customer pre-order releases are The Great Game, about the Russo-British rivalry in Central Asia, which I'm very much looking forward to, and Blenheim, about, well, you can probably guess what that's about. Also, Kim Conger's Dien Bien Phu, The Final Gamble, is officially out of print, uh, but is now on the reprint pre-order list and only needs 150 orders to be reprinted. Uh, let's get that classic in print again. Uh, I've pre-ordered the second edition myself. Uh, that's at legionwargames.com. And if you go to their webpage, you'll see my video about the game, which I hope everyone who hasn't seen will take a look at. Now, Brian Train has a lot of games coming out. Uh, Colonial Twilight was just released from GNT, um, albeit with an unfortunate card misprint that will be corrected before retail copies go out, so I think that might delay that a little bit. Also, Binned In 69 is a new folio game from One Small Step that Brian designed. And now Winter Thunder is out from Tiny Battle Publishing. That's Mark Herman's Small Games imprint. Now, this is a substantial redesign of his game Autumn Mist, a game that came out in 2004 about the Battle of the Bulge and was published back then by Fiery Dragon. I guess the new research also showed that December is indeed not in autumn, but in winter, hence the name change. Like I said, this is from Mark H. Walker's Tiny Battles imprint uh, that focuses on smaller games. It's also on sale for an unspecified amount of time for $20 instead of $27, so that'll definitely cover your shipping cost in the U.S. You can see the link on the podcast page to tinybattlepublishing.com. I was glad to see that Compass Games appears to be reprinting an old Jedco Games title called The African Campaign as a designer signature edition. If you haven't heard about this, The African Campaign's an oldie, uh, first published in 1973, and was compared to Africa Corps at that time because they covered the same subject in a similar way, plus there weren't that many games about anything at that time, so games like that were going to be compared. But they were pretty similar in their approach. I didn't get into The African Campaign, the way I got into Africa Corps, but Africa Corps definitely has its limitations. I can understand that, and I can see why the African campaign is probably a better game. Oh, and why does it sound just like another Jedco title, the Russian campaign? Well, because it's by John Edwards. Yeah, the same designer. Uh, the Russian campaign was one of my favorite games for years, so it's worth checking this one out if you haven't heard of it. Or even if you do remember it, I assume that it'll be printed in a higher quality edition than what was possible in 1973. That'll be $55 retail, but is on pre-order now for $40. So see www.compassgames.com. Patton's Vanguard is now available from Revolution Games for $33, and two new games have been announced in the theater on the other side of Europe. Both are late war Eastern Front titles designed by Stefan Ekstrom. One is Army Group Narva, simulating the Soviet offensive into Estonia in early 1944, and the second is called Königsberg and covers the heavy metal convergence known as the 1945 East Prussia Offensive. Both were published by the now-defunct Three Crown Enterprises. Those were uh, published back in 2011 and 2012. It seems like Revolution Games is upgrading the artwork. I think they're testing it more, they said, and some new rules development. Now, Three Crowns was, um, I think, actually, sorry, Three Crown, I 
I don't think it was plural, was a kind of one step up from desktop publishing group. So I'm looking forward to see how these games look and play when Revolution is done with them, since Roger Miller's company can put out some really nice products. What's interesting, though, is that it looks like this is the same game that MMP currently has on pre-order, and it's $31.50 over there. Not sure what the deal is? Maybe we can get some clarification. I got an update about Königsberg from Roger Miller of Revolution Games by email. Roger tells me that Königsberg will actually not be published by MMP anymore, as MMP has dropped it from their lineup as it failed to reach an adequate number of pre-orders. Königsberg will receive additional testing and development, and it will be published by Revolution Games. MMP also lowered the print run and pre-order requirement for Front Toward Enemy, their Vietnam War tactical game, but has kept the pre-order price the same, so you get a bigger discount. You get the game for $48 as a pre-order, but the retail is going to cost you $70 now. Also, Devil's Cauldron is up for reprint again at $180. That's the northern half of Market Garden at 500 meters per hex. I guess that's why it costs $180. Uh, it'll be $240 retail, though. For $240, you can get a copy of Streets of Stalingrad 3rd Edition on the secondary market, just for a price comparison there. And don't forget the Red Factory's reprint of Red Barricades for Advanced Squad Leader with an all-new Red October module. Now, the kicker is, if you already have the Avalon Hill edition of Red Barricades and only want the Red October Factory module, you can only buy that product during pre-order. Once it's out, it comes out as Red Factories and is both games. That's going to be $99 pre-order for either one, but then, oh, sorry, it's $123 pre-order for the double and $99 for the single. Uh, what's going to happen? Well, a bunch of people are going to order the single game and sell it as an upgrade kit for years and years. That's just how it works. You can see the entire MMP update email with the whole pre-order pricing catalog. Um, there are other games, much of uh, which of the, much of that catalog I've discussed on previous episodes, but you can see that link on the podcast page. Now, Tom Russell and Mary Holland uh, have talked on their podcast about why they don't do a pre-order system or do Kickstarters for their games. And one reason mentioned was that using print-on-demand allowed them to produce far more games than they would otherwise. Uh, if you don't know, uh, Tom and Mary, uh, do they're the duo behind Hollandspiele. And the problem with Hollandspiele's master plan is they have so many games. I don't know, is that a problem? You tell me. Here's what we've got. Operation Unthinkable from Ty Bamba, one of his alternative history designs about the continuation of World War II after the fall of Berlin. That is More Aggressive Attitudes, designed by John Tyson, and this models the 1862 campaign in Virginia during the American Civil War. Then Battles on the Ice, one of Tom's own designs about the clash on Lake Pipus between the Teutonic Order and Novgorod in 1242. And Dynasty, Who Shot J.R. by J.R. Burke. I mean, wait, uh, no, sorry. Uh, that's Dynasty, the Era of Five Dynasties. Yeah, that's what it is. This is a game about 10th century China by Richard Burke. Um, that last one for me is very interesting because, as I said when I interviewed Philip Jelly about his Chinese variant of Britannia on an earlier edition of Wild Weasel, I mentioned that I wish there were more games about China. And here we are. Uh, Dynasty is a struggle between one player who takes the role of emperor and the others who are provincial governors. That's an interesting bit of asymmetry there, and I love the idea of an asymmetrical multiplayer game about China. That's $45 and can be had from Holland Spiele using their print-on-demand model. 
By the way, uh, Mary and Tom have their own podcast, which has episodes even shorter than Wild Weasel and is great for keeping up with their releases. You can find a link to it on my podcast page. And they had an interesting one where they explained why the print-on-demand model works better for them than the others. So, Schutze Games is an Australian publisher with whom I've had a less than satisfactory experience. And if you buy their game NOM 65-75, to please be aware that the missing components you'll find can be downloaded from BoardGameGeek because I put them there. As of today, still no sign of any response from Schutze on BoardGameGeek, and that game was published, I think, at least a year, if not two years ago. Last I heard, they were still selling incomplete games to people. However, as of last month, they've partnered with Blue Panther LLC, an outfit out of the great state of Michigan who do the print-on-demand for that great Michigan game publisher, Hollandspiele. So if Blue Panther is doing Schutze's fulfillment, then you can probably count on complete games. How your post-purchase rule support and the like goes, I have no idea. But if you're willing to find out, there are six titles currently on offer through Blue Panther, including Fall of France and Somalia Interventions. Uh, the second one is by Brian Train, by the way. Uh, Fall of France came out originally in 2002, and Somalia Inter- Interventions is almost two decades old, uh, having first come out in 1998. In fact, I think all the games listed are old ones except one, which is Eureka Stockade, about the Eureka Rebellion and the battle between the miners and the colonial government in Australia in December 1854. It's a pretty interesting title. That's 25 bucks US for that. I have a link to the whole site on the podcast episode page, but you can go to www.bluepantherllc.com. I think they have a Schutze link there, but like I said, I'll have the whole link on the podcast page. High Flying Dice Games, that's Paul Rohrbaugh's company, has two new releases. Hot Blood Cold Steel about the 1965 Indo-Pakistani War and Breaking Teeth about the battle during the Spanish Civil War south of Madrid. Now Bloody Dawns, a strategic level game of the Iran-Iraq War that I mentioned in a previous podcast, is available as a professional edition, uh, which is the boxed line of High Flying Dice Games, and that's for $45. I also call your attention to Fortunate Sons, and Bad Moon Rising, two other professional edition games, which each cover a different battle in Vietnam in 1970. In fact, the two battles are only five days apart. Each individual game is available for $25. That's at www.hfdgames.com. Worthington Publishing has launched a Kickstarter for their game Dunkirk, colon, France 1940, and to surf the wave of support this Kickstarter has gotten, Warner Brothers released a movie about it, directed by Christopher Nolan. Unfortunately, I didn't think it was very good. The movie, that is. I don't know about the game. It's not out yet. You've got about two more weeks to get in on the Kickstarter at a cost of $65. See the Kickstarter link on the podcast page. Mark H. Walker's Flying Pig Games has Armageddon War on sale for $75 and the Burning Lands expansion on sale for $35. Um, I think these are simply Kickstarter equivalent prices because I don't think these games are even out. The Kickstarters were successful, so the games are going to be printed, but I think this is a way for Mark to let retail buyers in on the prices that were in effect for the Kickstarter. Uh, Mark does have the Winter Thunder game by Brian Train available from his Tiny Battles imprint that I mentioned earlier. Kevin Zucker has Napoleon's Resurgence available for pre-order at the Operational Studies Group website at www.napoleongames.com with a projected publication date of February 2018. This will have different size maps, 560 counters, 100 cars, and a bunch of player aids. 
price is $76, which would have given me a heart attack as a teenager trying to buy new games. I still remember looking at Fire Movement and seeing Streets of Stalingrad being advertised for, you know, I actually don't remember how much it was, but it seemed like a million dollars and thinking, no way, no how. But now a retail copy of Devil's Cauldron costs $240, so that's, this is cheap, right? Actually, Kevin's games are very reasonably priced for how beautiful they look, how well-researched they are, and how well they play. So if you like Napoleonic games or just good games, go to www.napoleongames.com and find out more there. A lot of things are going on at GMT Games, and their latest update email just arrived a couple days ago, so I thought I'd lead off with something that wasn't in that email, but that Mark Herman tweeted to me this week, or actually last week, which is that he's working on an expansion to the Fire in the Lake game called The Fall of Saigon. I don't see it mentioned anywhere on GMT's website, but Mark confirms that this is a thing, so that's great news. Uh, A thing that is on GMT's website, and is also a thing, and it's in their most recent update, is that Mark has completed work on a new negotiation game called Fort Sumter, The Secession Crisis, 1960-61. And Mark describes it as a two-player card-driven game portraying the 1860 secession crisis that takes about 25 to 40 minutes to play. It's also described as a, quote, small footprint game, end quote. And that's intriguing to me, not just because I love Mark's designs and I love the subject, but because we need more short, challenging games like 13 Days. One thing I'm very happy about is that Ted Racer's The Dark Valley is getting put back on the P500 list as a deluxe edition. Uh, The Dark Valley is an excellent Eastern Front game. In fact, it's one of my favorites in that it does a great job of facilitating Russian counterattacks during 1941, which is absolutely historically accurate. But for some reason, it didn't reach the P500 threshold for reprint after being on the list for a long time. I hope the deluxe edition gets some people who own the original, like me, to sign up for another copy. Yeah, I'm going to do it. It's, It's that good a game. Anyway... I won't go through all the GMT updates because you can easily go through the list of games by clicking on the link on the podcast page. And hearing game name after game name read out can get pretty boring, can it? I will say that of all the stuff they announced, the most likely things to arrive by the time you get around to listening to this edition of Wild Weasel probably will be Illusions of Glory and Fields of Fire. I think Fields of Fire is now an early August release. I have a link to all of it on the Wild Weasel page, so go there if you, for some reason, don't get GMT's update emails. There's a Kickstarter I want to tell you about that 99.9% of you won't be able to take advantage of, but I'm going to tell you anyway. This is a Kickstarter for a print magazine called Gazette du Wargamer, which looks to be entirely in French. As of right now, that I, the time I'm recording, they are less than $100 from their Kickstarter goal of €1,000. This is July 24th. Now, I don't know what kind of magazine you're going to get for just €1,000. I mean... That's one issue. Where are they going to find the money for the rest of the issues? Especially after you end up with less than 900 euros after credit card fees, Kickstarter fees, taxes, that kind of thing. And the campaign will probably have less than 12 hours to go by the time you hear this, even if you listen to the podcast as soon as I post it. So this may be old news, but I really have a soft spot for print magazines. And if this interests you at all, I'd love to see it get off the ground. Of course, it's a Kickstarter, so who knows how far off the ground it will actually get. Link is on my podcast page. Check it out. Remember how I was complaining about missing out on the Hands in the Sea Kickstarter a while back, and the designer Daniel Berger saved me by sending me a copy? Well, you can still pre-order the retail game, which I think is going to ship in September sometime, don't quote me on that, by going to the Kickstarter link on my podcast website, and there's a pre-order link there. I got a chance to play Hands in the Sea last month, and boy did I like it. Caveat, 
My opponent did not, mostly because I think he didn't pick up on how best to build his deck, and thus was pretty frustrated in trying to accomplish anything. I had the advantage of having played a few acres of snow many times before, and this design definitely builds on that one. But I think I mentioned before, this is one of those games that really benefits from repeat playings, which is something that we're really not doing as war gamers that much anymore because so many games are coming out. So I'm definitely going to try this out again with a different opponent before too long. Based on my playing, I definitely recommend this game. And that's the news. Today on Wild Weasel, we have Travis Hill, co-host of the Low Player Count podcast. Travis, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Bruce. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Well, Travis, you are one of these mythical people uh, who did not join the wargaming hobby in the 1970s and doesn't tell stories about their first <laughs> copy of Africa Corps that they played in junior high school. That's that's true. In fact, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, I, I I have some specific questions for you, but just so the sure. listeners know, t- tell uh, tell us uh, how you got into our particular hobby. Sure. Um, and so I've been I've been board gaming like most people for their entire lives in some capacity, one way or the other. Um, and a number of years ago, a little over a decade ago, kind of rediscovered board gaming in its current iteration. And through that, discovered uh, war gaming as well. And so you're right. I, I didn't do any war gaming uh, growing up whatsoever. Um, there was nothing like that uh, that I was really interested in. I didn't even know it existed. I might have actually cared more about that had I known that it existed, but it didn't exist to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so I just opted not to do anything about it. Um, and so I discovered it through Board Game Geek and through friends and decided, you know what, this is a thing that I want to engage in. And that's really how it happened. I decided this might be kind of cool. Why don't I try and get into it and just see what happens, you know? Okay. Well, that that leads me to my first question because it seems like you know you you said you've been playing board games for your entire life, but you had like many of us had a, a you know period where we didn't. But now you're you're back in the hobby and you've uh, this current incarnation of euros and how mechanics and and game weight has proliferated. What makes you want to actually play a war game and not just pull out you know some heavy euro that uh, that'll take up all day? So. It's it's funny behind the scenes podcasting magic, right? Whenever you you asked me to come on, you you sent me these questions, and I sat there and I stared at this one for a while because I really had to think: why why do I want to play a war game instead of just an economic or a euro game? What what is it that really excites me? And I think I think for me, they tweak different parts of my brain. So um, on on low player count, I'm primarily the economic Euro train gamey war gaming guy, and out of the, out of the three of us, and so and so for me, a Euro or a train game it can be all about economics, right? It's about interesting mechanisms that kind of play throughout the entirety of the game, and it's about like chaining those. Chaining, chaining those mechanisms together um, to create like this self-sustaining engine. Like I love engine building games and I love logistical games. So for me, a game like Oren Labora from Uwe Rosenberg or Roads and Boats by Splatter, those are, that's like my, my niche wheelhouse. But in those games, I'm either playing solo or with a group and I'm trying to optimize each action, each turn to win and to get the best possible outcome. 
But in war games, it's less about that optimization, even though that's that's definitely still a part of it. It's I find it less about that optimization and more about the actual simulation that plays out. I see. Okay, so so you're so you're saying that the op, because you you assume that there is an optimization, right? Because that some of these the, the Euro games, you can sort of think of the perfect turn, like how you can completely optimize your turn. But in a in a in a large war game, a there's a there's a chance element, and B there are enough moving parts that it's really hard to say. Well, that would that that's the perfect move. It, it's much better than all. You can't even consider all the all the possibilities. Sure, exactly, and and that's what I love about it because it's it's less about that optimization and more about the simulation that plays out. So I'm I'm the guy that um, that I read all the flavor texts on all of the cards. I read all the historical background and I read the designer notes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I remember whenever I first got. Um, Navajo Wars a number of years ago, I sat down and I, I knew nothing, nothing about that time period in that era, but I sat down and I read all of Joel Toppin's notes. I read everything about the subject and that this is what I love most about, about Wargaming is that it brings so much of this true-to-life historical aspect into it and it lets me kind of play in the system and in the simulation and see all the what-if scenarios and not worry about trying to make the best move possible. Because in a Euro game, that's what I feel like I have to do. Mm-hmm. If I'm playing if I'm playing a Euro game, I need to make sure that I'm converting those resources to that to make sure that that builds that building that I can play on down the road. But in a war game, mm-hmm. there are, just like you said, there's so many possibilities out there that it, it, it's nigh impossible. And with the random element of a card flip, mm-hmm. like in uh, like an RAF by Butterfields, yep. you know, you have that you have that card flip and you'll go, well, <laughs> there go those plans mm-hmm. or or a die roll in something like um, Warriors of God. I mean, yep. you have no idea. You, you just kind of go, you, you have to bob and weave and just kind of go with it and yeah. enjoy the experience and the simulation instead of well that's not that's not good and so i see this with my friends who i get into wargaming slowly and some of them take on and they really enjoy it and they have fun with it and then others of them uh, not quite so much because right. they're like well that die roll of a five really screwed me over yeah. well yeah no you'll be fine <laughs> yeah well that well that's interesting that that uh, that there are things that that uh, i think euro gamers don't so much except I think a lot of uh, randomization in the terms of die rolls particularly bothers them. So that mm-hmm. leads me to my next question. What is, do you think there's anything that uh, people who enjoy Euro games and obviously have the capacity to uh, enjoy complicated war games, is there something that, that war game designers could do or some the hobby could do to, to draw more of these gamers in? Um, I think... I think you can i i definitely think that that's that's possible and i think you see i think you see those things occur as well so for example like um like the coin system right mm-hmm. the coin system has incorporated the economic aspect that you get in a lot of euro games in a yes. way that i feel engages euro players mm-hmm. but it also doesn't necessarily put off war gamers because and depending on obviously which game you you still have those lines of communication you still have supply lines and you still have to figure out all the kind of quote unquote war gamey stuff that you're doing mm-hmm. and there's still a die roll in some of those but it's not all about the die roll it's not all about that kind of that randomness but then you also have those moments of say for example like liberty or death you have this 
this massive CRT that you're going through just trying to figure out, okay, so all right, I'm at a plus three. And so right. for a Euro gamer or a new war gamer, that could put off people. But I think it's kind of finding your battles. It's it's also, you know, actually part of it is also just kind of figuring out like as a Euro gamer, what kind of Euro games that person likes. I, one of the, one of the guys on the show, Donnie, um, he, he, I think he wants to like war games, mm-hmm. but one of his least um, excited, least favorite mechanisms is area control. Uh-huh. And let's just be real honest. 80% of war games has some aspect of area control in them because th- that's the whole point. You're, right. you're moving in and you're taking over this area and yeah. you're trying to hold on to it. And so for him, after playing a, playing a few war games or crossover war games, um, by crossover war games, I mean something like um, like Vrsindas Folk is a great crossover war game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a game that has, uh, that has this area control aspect. It has this card-driven mechanic, but is also just not, it's not just a straight up die roll and just see what happens. Um, he enjoyed that, but I think pushing him further into mm-hmm. the hobby might not have worked out quite as well. Interesting. So you're saying that <clears throat> it sounds to me like the there's actually an an interesting division between war gamers and and heavy euro gamers, which you seem to uh, you focused on the idea of economics. And that mm-hmm. there's there's a resource management model, which in uh, some war games or many war games there simply isn't. Um, is yeah, that the, is that the difference between between focus on the military and focus on the economic? Is that like a kind of a philosophical uh, theme issue that we're dealing with? Well, I think it could be partially that, but I also believe that a good chunk of that it also comes from the level of. Um, it's the scope of the game, right? And so you look at a game uh, like, have you played The Lamps for Going Out by by Compass? It's a World War One game, but it's absolutely yes, right, I right. Absolutely so, played that. But it's such a large, it's such a large scope of a game mm-hmm. that you still have resource and economics. Right. You have it with that. You have it with Triumph and Tragedy. You have it with Fields of Despair. All of these games that have been coming out in the last couple of years mm-hmm. have this mesh of this economic engine that you're trying to build and you have to deal with production and you have to deal with all of this, but they slide it into a game that has supply lines that you're playing with, you know, it it. slides it into this game where there's, where there are actual blocks that you are trying to combat. And so I don't think it's necessarily, I think, I think it depends on the scale of the game. I think more than anything else. So when we're talking, so we're talking about the scale. I mean, you're talking about like if, if it's the minutia, if it's a game like D-Day at Omaha right. Beach, there is no way that you could add economic and economic engine into that. However, right. if you are dealing with a larger scale game that is involving countries and not just individual units or troops, I think you can get more into the economics and the production of how that works out. Well, that's interesting because I think um, I think the uh, the the thing there is that there's this sort of the scope of a global war in wherever it may be based seems more compelling than some specific battle and that the battle itself uh, you have to either have an interest in that battle or there has to be something really compelling about the mechanics uh, otherwise the players may not may not really find that uh, something they want to play would you say that's fair Oh, definitely. I mean, most most Euro gamers, I would say, find whether they're heavy or mid or lightweight, anywhere across the board, people who really, really enjoy Euro games tend to 
enjoy the mechanisms. Like you hear about this all the time. Someone go, man, that's a really cool mechanic. The mm-hmm. way that this happened and that happened and that happened. Right. And you find and you find that, and that's where people go, oh yeah, that's cool. That's a cool mechanic. But you tend to not have quote unquote cool mechanics that happen in war games right. because you're so concerned about about the theme or the conflict that you're trying to simulate and and there are ways that you can have these these cool mechanics kind of play out and and you're finding more of these interesting ideas and mechanics being put into war games um, which i think helps a lot with the crossover as well because you have people that go well i don't really care much about this conflict but that's a really way to to perform that action and to to recreate the the actual event that occurred Mm -hmm. because these mechanics are kind of cool so what yeah yeah i'll give that a shot sure okay well it's it's uh I guess it's the, the the problem that you have in in computer games to to a certain extent too. Like the the, the idea of the tactical battle uh, versus the uh, strategic war game, and then you know people mm. really the strategic war game gives you that 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 big scope that uh, is much more more likely to sell than uh, somebody that just is doing the battle of Waterloo. But, uh, mm-hmm. but that that leads me to my third question, <clears throat> which is, what's uh, it's a two part question. What's sure. the, what's a trend in wargaming in the wargaming hobby now that you like? Something that's going on that that excites you? Um, I think as somebody who got into war games later on, um, and kind of I dove pretty deep. Um, so, so I like everybody else. I followed I followed the hotness, and I got a copy of Twilight Struggle. Regardless of whether you believe that's a war game or not, right? right? No, I mean, that's, that's kind of the that's the big caveat, you know. That's um, fair. But but regardless, that was my first the first game that actually had political historical political flavor to it, mm-hmm. and so and I got it. And I knew it was number one, and I enjoyed the Cold War. That was a con a, a conflict, I guess, if you want to mm-hmm. call it right. Sure. Um, there was a, t- a time period that I was really interested in, and so. I had to get it, and it sat on my shelf, languishing for a year and a half. And then I finally sat down and read the rules, and it was my first time reading a war game rule book, mm-hmm. um, which is which is ironic. Now, one of the side jobs that I job is a loose term. But one of the side things I get to do is I, I help edit and proofread rule books, and I work with GMT. So, mm-hmm. it, so here's the irony in all of this: is now I I edit these rule books. At first, I went, "Holy moly, you've got to be kidding me!" <laughs> we have, we have bullet points. Why do we have bullet points? Um, right. And, and so I remember sitting down and I taught it and just fell in love. And I fell in love with not the mechanics, but the way, the the tension, the passion that was involved in this and the way that it just, oh, it drew, it drew me into what was going on. And I realized that part of it was the fascination that I had with the game itself, but then part of it was I was learning more as the game went on. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think... Because I started off with Twilight Struggle, and then I just dove deep right after that. Um, I think for me, part of it is I think there's been this really good trend to have some more introductory war games. And whenever I say introductory, I don't mean, I don't. I don't necessarily mean like the conflicts that like Academy is putting out, you know, um, like Academy is like 1812 and 1776. These great, these great, very light euro games mm-hmm. that are set in a war setting but right. i am talking things like like a game like the lamps are going out or mm-hmm. i or warriors of god and warriors of japan those couple of games because they're not difficult at all but the repercussions of what you do on turn one 
can still affect you turn five or turn six. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because you still have a little bit of these that you have an easier an easier to get through rule set that doesn't have all of the the ooky bits of chrome that you see in some of these games mm-hmm. and I love all of those games as well but I'm not going to sit down and teach enemy action Arden to my buddy right. who's new into wargaming right. and so I think finding these entry points um are great another thing is that games that aren't necessarily like the simulation of a battle but rather one about the more unique aspects um one of the games that really has kind of blown me away recently has uh you and i have actually conversed on twitter about this a little bit is uh the game supply lines of the american revolution put up by tom russell and holland spiele um that game is not a war game in the slightest but it is involved with the American Revolution conflict, and it's it's a logistics game, which for me is beautiful because I love logistics games. It's a logistics games that have this very simple battle mechanic that is still crucial to winning the game. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I love that there are more of these crossover games that aren't just necessarily it's a Euro game combined with uh, war game mechanics or war game combined with with Euro mechanics, but it's a it's a logistics game now. It's not engine building. It's it's not card drafting. It's not anything like that. It's just it's a straight up logistics game, like a train game almost. But hey, we're gonna set it in the American Revolution and see how it plays out. Like I I love that there are so many more of those that are that are happening. You know, yeah. um, and then obviously obviously as a as a solo gamer, uh, predominantly more more war games that are geared specifically for solo gamers mm-hmm. instead of the I'm gonna play both sides of the conflict. Um, which is both good and bad because, you know, whenever you're playing both sides, for some people who are new to wargaming, mm-hmm. it's difficult for them to kind of put themselves in the shoes right. of the individual factions, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and But then the downside of that is, holy moly, you have you have flow charts upon flow charts for days at this point, you right. know? And, and that's, that's, that's one of the good and the bad things about that. But... Really, I'm excited to see to see wargaming become. I don't want to say become more mainstream because that always tends to feel like oh, what's well, becoming more mainstream. But with that, because it's more mainstream, people are taking greater risks and are being more creative in the ways that they're handling specific and individual conflicts as we go. Yeah, I think that wargaming has finally had its own sort of Euro revolution. Not in the sense mm-hmm. that, not <clears throat> not in the sense that games are becoming you know sort of super. Uh, uh, or not becoming war games, they're just they they're they're willing to use just like you said with the, the supply lines of the American Revolution, they're, they're they're willing to use different mechanics set in a war game theme, and I think that that is yeah. I mean we're always going to have hex encounter war games, so the fact that mm-hmm. people are are willing to go and and do these other things I think is really great. Is there anything that you could we could do less of in war gaming? <laughs> um, no, I. You have this issue with everything um, in terms of any type of board gaming whatsoever, or I guess any type of any type of the gaming hobby, right? You have you have people that want to make war gaming more accessible, and so then you have people, you have some designers or companies who do the exact opposite and say, "Well, we gotta we gotta keep this the way it is, and this is the way it always has been, and so we're gonna put out another hex encounter war game with with." seven to ten charts that you have to reference throughout the entire time um 
And so I think I think the swing, the pendulum that you have, uh, someone makes something that's a little easy to get into, then someone makes something ultra hard and difficult to decipher. That's not a bad thing. I just want to make. I would just hope that people do it for the right reasons. That they're designing the game not because they want to make this brutal, very dense game to get through, but instead they want to make this game that has all this chrome that adequately represents the conflict. I think it'd be more intentions, which is hard. You know, you can't you can't put that on on anybody. You can't ask any designer why are you why are you really designing this exceptionally difficult game? Right. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I think you can ask a lot of people why, when they design war games why they're doing the doing that game, and, and everybody is just like, well, I'm really interested in this this thing, right? I mean, that's why we all play mm-hmm. war games. I'm really interested in the, uh, you know, Russo-Japanese war. Ooh, I got to go find a game about the Russo-Japanese war. Sure. But um, I, I think that that the, the super complicated games are always going to be with us, so... Oh yeah, there's, there's not going to be a shortage of those. Did you, by the way, did you notice the? Uh, that was a hilarious thing. I'm sure you did. The uh, everybody did because everybody knows uh, where campaigns for North Africa became the uh, the t- number one hotness <laughs> game on on yes. board game geek. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm I'm on Reddit occasionally, and I just kind of bebop into the board games, the board game subreddit on there. And but apparently, I missed the initiation of that thread, and then I popped up on Board Game Geek, and it was like. What's going on? <laughs> you know, every, every but this is insane. Yeah, and everybody's like, "Why is this? Why is this someone on the hotness? Like, is there a reprint? No, there's no way there's a reprint of this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank God there's not. <laughs> I don't mean to say that there's not a place for those heavier war games, right? Because I I love them just as much as anybody else. It's just making sure that the intention of them is because they enjoy the conflict. Um, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that I have any any knowledge that anybody has done this this is just a i just keep in the back of my mind this thought of well people are making these more introductory war games i just don't want somebody to swing the opposite way and say i'm gonna make this just as hard as nails because i can you know um and i think part of that is calling a game what it is is it a simulation is it uh is it a game that actually involves this conflict are you just doing it because you want to make something that's exceptionally difficult um it's like Whenever people call board game war games solo games, whenever they're really not, you know, what's the solitaire rating on this game? High. Well, of course you can play both sides of the conflict. Yeah. Um, you could do it that way, or you have a flow chart, and that's it. You have this AI that you're fighting, that you're combating and showing. And I think there are really, um, I think there are some some great leaps forward in that. Just making sure that that we're calling games what they are, and we're giving the the reason as to why we're producing these games. We want them to be so that we can explore these conflicts, uh, not just for the sake of let's create another World War II game and let's just make it just as tough as nails because we can. It's like no, if you're interested in that specific battle or that conflict, then then explore it and have fun with it. Yeah. I agree. Uh, There there shouldn't be a constraint on the designers. They just should, uh, like all designers, they should really carefully think about what they're doing before (laughs) they do it. So... Well, anyway. and that comes through. That comes through development, hopefully. <laughs> yes, the developers, the the the, the uh, unsung heroes of, uh, oh. of 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 board game uh, creation. I think there should yeah. be. We should. That's that's the thing I'd really like to do is get a just get a panel of people who have done a lot of development work, and just talk no to joke. them about you know what what the, the the things that they've changed and how they've made things better uh, in terms of uh, in in terms of getting some designers to to give up things that they probably didn't want to give up, but. Mm-hmm. Cause that's tough work. That that I I've sat in in a few playtests of games, and I 
discovered very quickly that I cannot do this. This is this is not my forte. Mm-hmm. Let me know when it's almost done, and I'll look at your rules. Um, I'll <laughs> whatever it is, but I can't I can't sit there and do play testing because that development work is is brutal. And those you're right; those people are the unsung heroes of board gaming in general, but especially with whew, especially with war games. Yep. You know, there's a lot of stuff that gets tossed out. Um, as as uh, production development goes on, right? Well, we'll I'll leave them to that, and uh, and we can just continue to uh, enjoy the pr- the products of their labor. Um, yes. Although I am play t- doing some playtesting on Gandhi now, I'm really fascinated with that. That'll oh, be, that'll, that's th- cool. That'll be great when it comes out. But uh, I hope. But uh, Travis, thanks so much for uh, for coming on. It was really uh, exactly what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear uh, the us not the, the non. Um, old school people come and talk mm-hmm. about what uh, what's really great about the hobby because I, I i love this hobby so much and uh i it, it just it tickles me when i hear uh people who didn't grow up uh in my time with games on uh with you know these games on this the shelves at toys r us but uh, still mm-hmm. find what what's uh, what's attractive about them oh and i'm pretty i'm appreciative of it as well because i i I, I listen to Wild Weasel with a notepad uh, <laughs> because because you'll just you'll just, you will rattle off things that have been around for twenty or thirty years and I'm like oh, what what is this yeah good <laughs> you know? well I'm glad and I'm, I, I'm glad I we're able it. to exchange that knowledge then good well I appreciate it Bruce most definitely thank you so much uh, Travis thanks for being on the show. If you follow the Euro gaming scene, you know that the idea of the legacy game, in which you progress through a board game and uncover new twists and turns at the expense of only being able to play the game through once, is a big hit. Turns out that people like episodic board gaming where you progress through multiple sessions. <laughs> How about that? One of the byproducts of this is they have to alter the game when you play by writing on it or otherwise modifying it. So it's really only good for a limited time. And that pleases the publishers no end, of course, since they have to keep making... <laughs> and selling new content. It's almost like people want board games to be more like TV series. The reason I bring this up is that I had a look at the new Silver Bayonet system this month, and I found out that what Eurogamers are just learning, Wargamers have known for a long time. Multi-session games that tell a story are amazing. We didn't actually play multiple sessions of Silver Bayonet, but by playing one of the longer scenarios, I got excited to play what makes certain games so attractive, the campaign game. Because we only played with 3rd Brigade, we didn't get into the multiple demands being placed on 1st Air Cav Division or how the objectives of the campaign spread their forces all over the map. But it was clear to me, and my opponent as well, that the system was great at highlighting the very different capabilities of the two sides. The NBA and the VC had the benefit of surprise and stealth, but couldn't stand up to the sheer firepower of the U.S. units. Now, the U.S. units were tough, but had to be in more than one place at once, and chasing down what could be just, you know, NVA dummy counters meant a lot of opportunity cost expenditure as it were. I was dying to see how having to deal with three full U.S. brigades, with an increase in my forces as well, of course, I was playing the NVA, would link the different geographical regions on the map. And the combat system with its different types of combat and the way they all are laid out in the battle board gives you a great intermediate focus for the gameplay, even as the larger picture changes, which is what I mean by bringing in the different geographical regions. We're going to sit down with a larger game when we can get both to devote the time to it, and I'm really looking forward to that. This reminds me of a series of games of the Dark Valley that I played with a friend on Vassal a couple years ago, at a pace of a couple hours per session, with maybe a session every week or two. The way the campaign unfolded made me anxious to see what would happen next, 
but because the game is so well-paced, each session had some interesting development that made it memorable. We only got as far as December before we had to put the game on hiatus, but I still remember that game fondly, because unlike even a 5- or 6-hour heavy Euro, a wargame campaign tells a story that can have multiple crescendos and session-long reverses of fortune that get reversed on the next session. When I played D&B and Foo, The Final Gamble, against a friend when I lived in North Carolina, it took us four full sessions, starting late in the morning, breaking for lunch, and ending before dinner. And each time we sat down to play, we took some time to look at the map, discuss what had happened before, and what we'd been thinking, before we started planning what we were going to do about it then. And after each session ended, believe it or not, we got to discuss how things had maybe not turned out the way we thought they would when we sat down that morning. The story the game told was up and down, back and forth, and really memorable. And this is maybe what I find most valuable about war games, besides, of course, the enjoyment I get out of sitting across a table from people and interacting with them in person over a common hobby. And that's how they paint these changing and evolving pictures of history while we're sitting there, and then give us a break while we go away to think about it and enjoy the possibilities before sitting down again. And with a good game, every one of these sessions is different and challenging. It's a TV series that changes each time you rewatch a season. But with a long war game, you don't have to wait for the publisher to put out a new campaign. You can just play it again. Maybe switch sides. The story you tell the second or third time is not going to be the same as the first. And you didn't have to throw away the game in between. But, I know, everybody wants to be on the cutting edge. So, if you really want to be like the cool Euro gamers, when you're playing the Dark Valley and you destroy a Soviet unit, just throw it in the garbage! Next time you play, I'm sure GMT Games will be happy to sell you a new copy. And that's it for this time. If you haven't seen my video about Tian Bian Fu, The Final Gamble by Kim Conger, please find it on Wargame Space under the video section. Join me next time, when I'll tell you exactly what I think of block games. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. For more wargaming news, people, and views, this has been Wild Weasel number 11.